Hello, and thanks for listening to Affirmative Action. I'm Antoinette Grajeda. Since its founding more than two centuries ago, a Black woman has never served on the United States Supreme Court, but that may be about to change. Justice Stephen Breyer's impending retirement means there's going to be a vacancy on the bench. Breyer has served on the court for nearly three decades. He took a seat in 1994 after then-President Bill Clinton, an Arkansas native, nominated him as an associate justice. About a month after Breyer announced his retirement plans in January 2022, President Joe Biden fulfilled a promise to nominate a Black woman to the Supreme Court with the nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. The Harvard Law School grad served as a U.S. District Judge from 2013 to 2021 when she received her commission as a U.S. Circuit Judge. Judge Jackson previously served as a law clerk for three federal judges, one of whom was Justice Breyer. According to Pew Research Center analysis of Federal Judicial Center data, Black women account for fewer than 2% of the more than 3,800 people who've ever served as a U.S. federal judge. However, that number is increasing. President Biden appointed 11 Black women to federal judgeships during his first year in office. That's more than all but two presidents during their entire tenures. Democrats Barack Obama and Bill Clinton each served eight years as president and appointed 26 and 15 Black women to the federal judiciary, respectively. To find out more about the impact of this historic nomination, we're speaking today with two Arkansas judges. First, we have retired Circuit Judge Joyce Williams-Warren. She became the first Black woman judge in Arkansas when she was appointed as a juvenile court judge in January 1983. In November 1990, she became the first African-American elected to a state-level trial court judgeship in Arkansas. When she retired in 2020, Warren was serving as the 10th division judge in the state's 6th judicial circuit. That position was filled by Shawnice Johnson, who, at 32, became the youngest woman to be elected as a circuit judge in Arkansas. Judge Warren and Judge Johnson, welcome to the show. We really appreciate you both taking the time and we're very excited about this conversation today. The first place I'd like to start is with Biden's uh, announcement that he was committed to nominating a Black woman to the Supreme Court. When you first heard that news, what was your initial reaction? And, And Judge Warren, I'll start with you. Thank you so much. My initial reaction was it is long past due. Certainly have had so many Black females since the highest court in the nation was established, which is 233 years ago, who have been eminently qualified to hold this position. And I'm just happy that he has kept his campaign promise and pledged to do just that. And what about you, Judge Johnson? I was very excited to learn that he was committed to doing that. I feel that with any goal, anything that you're trying to achieve, especially if you're trying to diversify the court, you have to be intentional about it. And as Judge Warren indicated, there are many Black women, many Black legal professionals, period, that are qualified for this position and would provide a a different perspective and a necessary perspective to um, the rules of law that this country would be expected to follow. Now, with the Supreme Court, we've never had a Black woman on the court, but also Generally speaking, in these higher ranking positions in the judiciary, there just aren't a lot of Black women in general. So having not seen a lot of women like yourselves in these positions, what inspired you initially to pursue that career as a judge? When I was thinking about becoming a judge, I didn't really think about the lack thereof of of me. Uh (laughs) 
I just, um, I felt it was like a, a calling to me. Like I felt passionate about it when this position became, this term became available and I, and I, and I met the qualifications to, to run. And so I just decided to go for it. Now I will say that seeing other, in other like state jurisdiction at that level, seeing other black women elected to the position and also knowing some of Judge Warren's um, history and the fact that I was taking over her seat, that also encouraged me, inspired me to just to push forward against maybe some of the things like the outside influences that might've been saying, no, don't do it or not run. Like that was encouraging, but I, I really didn't think about any of that. I just, it was, I, I was felt passionate about being a juvenile judge because that's specifically the kind of judge that I am. And um, I felt that I, I needed to do it. Well, well, for me, I never wanted to be a judge. In fact, I never wanted to be a judge. <laughs> I wanted to be a dentist. And so eventually my husband and I went to school together. And after I graduated from law school, we went in my grandmother's kitchen and he said, let's go take the law school admission test in Memphis. Now I'd already been accepted to and prepared to be a social worker because he and I both had our degrees in anthropology and sociology. And so I go, okay, sounds good to me. So we went and took the LSAT. I came back to Little Rock and enrolled in the law school, which was nighttime at that time, not ever wanting to practice law. James went to law school a year after I did because he's three months younger than I am. So he started school the year after I did. And so, you know, I thought, sounds good to me. I've got six years to finish. I took my time, didn't ever want to practice. And I finished law school in five years. Well, it is my husband who has shepherded my career and given me advice and counsel and been my mentor. So when the opportunity came for me to apply for the Pulaski County Juvenile Judge, he said, you need to apply for this. Of course, and always, I resisted and just hedged and hesitated. And I thought, I can't be a judge. He goes, why can't you? I just can't. So I applied and, and got that appointment from then County Judge Don Finhouse. And then after that, I got another appointment. And so I loved what I did because I've always been into community service and public service. And I love people. And of course, I think there is no more important work that you can do on the bench than being involved in helping children and families. So as Shani said, that has been my passion and that's how I started my career as a judge. So not on purpose, but it just happened because it's a meant to be thing for me. So not on purpose, but it lasted for a number of years and, and you have quite the, the storied career. What does it mean to you to look back and see what all you've accomplished, not only as a first, but just in general, the work that you did? Well, it's a testament that God put me here for a reason, put my husband in my life for a reason, and my path has been forged by him. And whether I resisted or not, <laughs> it worked out for the best. And I had some challenges along the way. When I was, after I was appointed the Pulaski County Juvenile Judge in 1983, four years later in 1987, the Arkansas Supreme Court declared the county system of juvenile court to be unconstitutional. So after a while, I actually was sent home. And then later that year in 87, then President Bill Clinton appointed a juvenile justice commission to actually look at and investigate and come up with recommendations of what a statewide constitutional juvenile court system should look like. And that was about an 18 month position on the commission. And after a few months, I thought, 
hold on, this is the same kind of job I was doing under the county system. So I think I want to apply for that. So I called Clinton and told him, I want the position if we actually create the system that we're intending. And so in August of 1989, he appointed the first round of juvenile judges in the state for the statewide positions. And I was one of those 17. And I served, that term was to end December of 1990. And in Arkansas, which I tell people is probably the only person in the entire world where you cannot run for the position to which you were appointed, I thought, well, the Juvenile Justice Commission recommended two or three judges for Pulaski and Perry counties. The legislature in its infinite wisdom appointed, created only one position. So when I was appointed that, that one, I thought, well, I don't know that I'm going to be able to continue as a judge ever because my position is going to end in December of 1990. Well, as God would have it, in November of that same year, 89, the legislature created a second position. And I then announced to run for that position. So that's how my continuation as a state judge doing juvenile work began. So fits and starts, but again, I know it was a meant to be thing. And then you retired in, in was it 2020? I retired in, yes, at the end of 2020, yes. And then you said, it was like passing the torch, I guess, to, to Judge Johnson who took over for you. What did it mean to you to know that another black woman was gonna be able to fill that role? Very, very satisfying and fulfilling. We want people of all races, colors, ethnicities, backgrounds, and experiences to be a part of the judicial uh, bench because it's important that each person bring his or her own perspective. And the federal, the state, any kind of bench judicially needs to have people who represent all of society. So it was very fulfilling. And I was very happy to be part of that passing the torch. And Judge Johnson, how did you feel filling those, those big shoes? Well, I didn't really look at it as filling, filling her shoes, um, as I can never, I feel like if you ever tried to be someone else, you can only be a second rate, <laughs> that person. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so, so, but I did, um, I was honored to have the position and honored to have her swear me in as judge, as, um, while the reason I ran and was inspired to run for judges was my passion, but I, initially in becoming a lawyer and going to law school, I did not have a desire to become a judge at all, but during my time and my tenure actually practicing before Judge Warren, that's when that passion developed you know, to, to help children and families because the spirit and energy when I was there was one where you did your best, you know, you, you, you did everything you could to know the law, know the facts and know what was doing it and know what was happening. And it's not the approach of that's not my job or, you know, to try to figure out a solution for children and families. And so having her swear me in to be the next person in line to, to fulfill, to ensure that the children and families in Pulaski County, you know, receive the services that they need and are being held accountable. Like I was just, it was just, it was an amazing experience. I mean, Judge Warren is, I mean, she's done so many things and she's highly accomplished. And um, I just am honored and extremely happy to just be able to continue some of the, the things that she has put in place and implement new things as well. As we've mentioned, it's important to have people of all backgrounds participating in the judiciary. What are some of the changes that you would like to see implemented or maybe that need to be implemented in order to open the door for more women of color to enter into the judiciary? 
I mean, as far as women entering into ju the judiciary, I think that a lot of, like I, my family, I'm a first generation college student. I'm a graduate, excuse me. And the first person in my family to become a lawyer. So there's, there was no, prior to me going to law school and actually working in the, in the field of law, there was minimal exposure to me to legal minds and the legal system in, in general. And so I think that the changes would occur at, uh, for the youth, as far as exposing more of our youth, allowing them to have shadowing opportunities and internships to see the court system at play, not just from a perspective of being a defendant or a participant in it, but from an advocate and helping helping families or in individuals in proceedings and showing them that it's possible. And then having, um, having someone to mentor and guide them and informing them of different qualifications. I think that's how you, you make that change personally, as far as encouraging more diversity period in the judicial system, because a lot of people don't understand it. Um, no matter how educated they are, they, they don't understand what's going on. They don't know the process. And so when they come into the this courtroom, it's always, it's just a foreign experience for them. And I think that's a way to, to make it not so foreign for everyone is just to ex have more avenues, opportunities for people to experience it outside of an adverse, adversarial uh, context. I agree because those things are being done and you're exactly right, having more of that being done and then having more information given to people about how the election process works, how the appointment process works and the qualifications, those things I agree are things that need to be done and continue to be done. Right, because you'd be surprised of how, like, how many people even in the legal system don't know <laughs> how it works, who are lawyers now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Unless you had an opportunity to experience it yourself or help someone who is going through that process, there's no reason for you to know. So you're exactly right. What's a, what's a good way to help people become more educated about the judicial system, even if they don't want to become a lawyer or judge or something like that? Just in general, like you said, there's folks that are working in the industry that still don't understand it. So how can we help um, even just educate the public a little bit more about what the system or how the system's actually set up and what it actually does. Well, I think just as Shani said, it, you, you, you speak to organizations, you speak to kids, you speak to students, every opportunity you can, you put it out there that there are a lot of opportunities for whatever you wanna be. In case you wanna be a judge, these are the things you need to know. These are the qualifications and experiences that you need to have so you can work towards that goal if that's something you want to do. But in general too, I think the electorate needs to have more education about what judges do, what they can't do, qualifications, so they can make informed decisions about who they elect, which in turn gives information to people who want to seek those positions as judges. So education, I think, and accurate ed education is really important and encouragement and just letting people know these opportunities there to be had. Absolutely. And for those that perhaps they're a student who gets exposed to this in, in school and they become interested and want to pursue that career, how much does, how much are financial barriers an issue to someone pursuing this career? Because I imagine law school's expensive. Some well, law schools are very expensive. <laughs> I haven't been, so I don't know, but I'm making an assumption here. <laughs> expensive is relative because if you don't have the money, any amount is expensive. Right. 
But you know, there are grants, there are scholarships, there are other avenues that people can pursue. And if you're determined to do something, there are ways to get it done. Janice may have more information on that since she was closer <laughs> to going to law school than I was years ago. Sure. Uh, she's absolutely correct. I mean, it, it is relative because you have schools that might call, especially if you, you attend a school that has in-state tuition, which, you know, Arkansas, Arkansas does have that option. Okay. <laughs> a lot of schools charge a lower rate for, for residents of, of the state to attend a school in that area. And so, I mean, it would depend how expensive it depends is how expensive an undergraduate education edu education you pursue. If you had scholarships or grants or loans at that point, and then just the specific school that you would choose to attend. I mean, usually state schools are cheaper to attend than private institutions for both um, undergraduate and law schools, as far as when I was looking. <laughs> but it but it is all relative based upon, you know, how much money you're able to find or your parents are able to just pay for pay, pay for you to go. Were you able, either one of you able to access resources if you needed them, like a scholarship or something like that, or, or grants? Just, I'm thinking like giving people like a, a concrete example if there's someone listening right now that's like, oh yeah, I'm looking into law school, but I need, I need some assistance. Like, where should I look? Well, I, I, I paid for, well, I, I never worked actually except two days one time, and then maybe a few months as a part-time employee at J.C. Penny when I was so I really never did have a job so to speak until I was out of law school. Mm -hmm. Pretty much paid for my law school, my husband, my grandmother, my mother, and I did get I think two scholarships from the Arkansas Association of Women Lawyers, which was really very helpful. But again, I was going at night, so the cost wasn't nearly as much as it would be had I been full time going at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville which was the only full-time law student at uh, law school at that time. But there are entities that are willing to help pay for law school. You just have to be real diligent about where you look, get advice on deadlines, qualifications for those loans and grants and scholarships, and it can be done. It's a lot of work, but many people do it all the time successfully. Right. And um I mean, the main, as far as law school, because I mean, once you get to graduate school study, the, the amount of, I guess, grants, like Pell Grants and different things like that, they're not the same at that point. Mm -hmm. You're more so looking toward the school's endowment as far as scholarships and things that they have in different individuals' names that have been set up by past alumni of the, the school itself. And then, um, they, I mean, different companies, I mean, if they work for a company, may uh, pay, for, <laughs> pay for the education if it's related to what they're doing or, and, and things like that. But uh, I, I would first start with the, any endowments from that the school has and then branch out to different private entities and FastWeb as well, as far as that have a list of scholarships that are just available that might apply to, to law. All good advice, I appreciate that. I wanna circle back for a moment to what we were discussing about that education component. And if you'll indulge me a moment and help um, educate myself as well as those listening, um, this conversation was inspired by the nomination of a Black woman to the Supreme Court. Can you help us understand, for those who aren't familiar, you know, what that process looks like? How advanced in the judiciary system do you have to be to be even considered? You know, I don't um, think folks fully understand where the nominees are coming for, from. Perhaps um, it's not just some random person. It's someone with, you know, a... Um, 
a lot of experience, but like, what does that experience look like if someone is interested in perhaps one day being considered to be on the Supreme Court, kind of what would that trajectory look like or what sort of positions would they have to pursue? I mean, to be honest, I, I think it comes down to who you know. <laughs> um, I sure. don't, I mean, I don't like, like most things. I mean, the, the president has his, he has his advisor, he has his list of, um, and they submit names to him as far as who they feel like who should be considered like their, his, his cabinet is, is vetting these individuals. And I don't think there's any specific one uh, roadmap to how to become a Supreme Court judge as, I mean, I mean, there haven't been that many because once you're appointed, you're appointed for life and they stay there for a very long time. Sure. And then, and then um, with the law, this is a little bit context. As far as someone going to law school and becoming a lawyer in and of itself, there's no specific undergraduate degree that you need to go to law school and become a lawyer. Um, any graduate degree, any undergraduate degree that you want to pursue, you can use that and apply to law school and become a lawyer. And the law, the law is in everything, you know? And everything that we touch, I mean, this 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 phone call right now, there are laws that are involved in us being able to connect and be able to utilize the system. And so, I mean, I know that it, it, it comes down to, to me, like networking and also being proficient, whatever, wherever you are planted, as far as like your position you are to, to be proficient at it, do that job well, and um, be able to demonstrate leadership. And so... Uh, that that that's my opinion about how, how it works because but Judge Warren might have a different take. Well, well, generally the nominees come from the federal bench, but sometimes they are law professors and have very other varied careers. So it's just not one size fits all. But of course that person has to have extreme qualifications to be able to write and to think clearly, be honest, respectful and have pretty much of a career where they have shown that they are capable of ruling fairly, having written opinions on certain issues. So all that comes into play. Thank you for helping us understand. Um, as you mentioned, there's been so few, and um, like you said, they come from different, different backgrounds or different positions. So there's not a one size fits all. With this new opening on the court, it seems like there were two very distinct reactions to the commitment of the president to nominate a black woman. On the one side, you have folks who are saying, you know, it's about time. There are lots of qualified women. On the other side, you have critics saying that um, he's only basing it on race and gender and that's not appropriate. What response would you have to that criticism that, you know, we're, we're picking a nominee just based on their background? Well, I was reading an article by Jordan Rubin from the Bloomberg Law News, which talks about that very same thing. The title was Biden far from the first to consider identity in Supreme Court pick. So, I mean, this has been done for years. Presidents have picked nominees with specific professional experiencing and the unique aspect of who they are. For example, in 1980, President Reagan vowed to appoint the court's first woman, and he did when he nominated Sandra Day O'Connor, who was confirmed in 1981. Donald Trump said he would replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a woman, and he did that with Amy Coney Barrett. Biden is not the first person to do this. This has been done before. And so it's nothing new. I think the ruckus is we're talking about a Black female, which is historically monumental. A Black person has been nominated before, 
the thing about it is some presidents don't come out ahead of time and say, I will nominate a black person or a black female. Some just do. And then of course they say, when it's done, I nominated someone who was the first black person. George Bush bristled at the notion when he nominated the second black justice, Clarence Thomas to replace Thurgood Marshall in 1991. And I'm quoting from that article, Bush called Thomas the best person at the right time because other women were considered as well. So you can announce it ahead of time and just bring the spotlight, I'm going to focus on this particular type of person, or you can consider it, appoint them and then say, yes, I appointed the first or appointed the second or appointed something like that. So it's nothing new. It's just that people are just upset, I think, at the fact that we're going to have a historically monumental nominee. And I just think it's it's just it's just a sign of the times. You know, people want to sometimes criticize any first, certainly want to criticize certain pres certain presidents because of certain political affiliations, but this person will be eminently qualified. And he made the announcement that he would keep a campaign pledge to nominate a first black female to the highest court in the nation. He's kept that promise. Nothing immoral about it, nothing illegal about it. I think it's wonderful to zero on certain people who have been systematically excluded. And that's what he's doing. So if the goal is diversifying the courts to help make them more representative of the people that they serve, how do you make sure that it continues progressing in this way? For example, whenever the next seat opens up, should the, the next president commit to nominating an Asian individual or an indigenous person, something like that? I think that would be something to look at and, and con consider doing as, as, I mean, we look at we are all people at the end of the day, right? And you look at the world through your eyes. And as, as judges, you, you aim to be fair and impartial and to check your own biases at the door when you're making decisions. But in order to check your biases, you have to recognize that, that you have them in order to make sure that you are not ruling in a way, you're ruling in a way that's consistent and fair when it complies with the law. And I think that the more diverse um, group of individuals that are making these decisions at the highest level, the better it is it'll be for the American people because there's a reason that, you know, the the judicial system in general, you know, you have a circuit judge, a trial level judge, that's one person making a decision. Then the next reviewing court, you know, the court of appeals, they'll have, uh, depending on the state and on what level, they'll have a, a panel of, of additional judges reviewing the decision by that one judge. And, and if it goes further beyond that, then they, you know, you have the, the Supreme Court of the United States and the state. And there's a reason that, that there are multiple minds checking uh, each level to make sure that what was done was correct and, and, and right and having people who see things through various perspectives and lenses and, and applying the law and the facts that are given to them is, is always gonna be better. Also, the next president who has the opportunity to nominate a person for any vacancy on the highest court can certainly make his or her own decision about whether they want to announce ahead of time they're looking at a specific person with qualifications, or if they want to just consider those and then let the results speak for themselves. But I think that's just a decision that's up to the president, whoever makes it at that particular time. And as you just alluded to, it's such a rare opportunity. We don't know when it's going to happen um, because 
Supreme Court justices are nominated for life and some die in office and some choose to retire. Just out of curiosity, what are your thoughts on having a position that's for life? I don't have a problem with life appointments for the Supreme Court. I don't have a problem for life appointments for a lot of judicial positions. The issue comes up is when a judge or justice is unable to continue to perform his or her duties as required, then there's the issue of removal. And that can always happen. So if they're able and willing to continue, their minds are sharp, their ability to do their job is not impaired, then I think that's, I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with people who aren't able to do what they're needing to do, even if they have term limits or decide that they have to leave because of an age limit, like in Arkansas, and don't do their job. That's where my problem comes in. As long as people can do their jobs appropriately, without disability, without things that make them no longer appropriate to do their job, then I think that's fine. I presume the fact that I had to leave at 70 years old, I'm thinking we've got lifetime appointments other places. In Arkansas, the power of removal rests with the beginning with the Arkansas Judicial and Disability Condition, uh, Judicial Discipline and Disability Commission, which will make recommendations to the Arkansas Supreme Court for removal, and then the ballot box. So if you're not doing your job in Arkansas as a state judge, there are ways to remove you. And the fact that I was 70 years old shouldn't, been, shouldn't have been the reason I had to leave. Now, saying that, I'm happy I did because the timing was perfect. <laughs> so I was Never thought I wanted to retire because I loved it so much, but I'm glad I retired because I loved it so much and I'm still able to do some of the things that I did as a judge as far as making recommendations for policy changes and changes to the law and helping children and families in other words, in other ways, I'm sorry. So it worked out well for me because God knew I needed to leave for my mental health because doing the work I was doing at home remotely when the pandemic was at its heyday, liked to have killed me and my staff. I never worked so hard or so long from home with the perils of the internet and everything else going on. It, it, was, it was too much. And so for my mental and physical health, God knew he was giving me the path that I needed to take to say, really, I really do need to retire. There's life after the bench. So that was, that's what worked for me. In respect to lifetime appointments or 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 term limits, I mean, I, I see I see benefits and criticisms of, of both. I agree with Judge Warren that um, a person should be allowed. I mean, as far as being having a Arkansas does have, does have that age cutoff, and being I don't feel that that should actually be a rule. Personally, I think it should also come down to like she said, are you able and capable of doing the job. Now, I, I do, and I do see the benefits of having lifetime appointments because people who are able to do the job and are doing a great job, they can continue to do so. Then, but on the other side of the coin, with term limits, um, bring change, you know, bring a different um, energy and things of that nature that could be brought forth to move the judiciary forward. But regardless of whether or not there's a term limit itself, but removing your age requirement, but a term limit itself or a lifetime appointment, um, I, I, I mean, I see the benefits and, and I guess criticisms of both being helpful. So 
So I would like to expand a little bit more about what you both touched on about the age cutoff in Arkansas. I want to use this for an educational moment because I'm not a hundred percent clear on it myself. Um, but is there a, help me understand, please. Is there a law that judges have are required to retire at 70? If you're already on the bench and serving a term, you can stay on the bench and complete that term, even though you're 70. Now, if you reach 70 and you want to run for another term, and this is a brand new term, you can still run, but you will forfeit your retirement benefits. And so in effect, that's just saying you're going to have to retire. So the effects are almost mandatory, but it really doesn't say that. So I thought I worked too long and too hard for my retirement benefits for me to work past 70 and lose them. So that was a choice I made. Every judge who reaches that position has to make that choice. But I chose not to give up my retirement benefits to keep on the bench because one thing about it, I could always serve as a special judge if I wanted to and were asked to after I retired. That's so interesting. I don't think I'm aware of a situation, well, until now, where you would lose benefits for working longer. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know the law people have tried to change the law more than once and actually there was a lawsuit filed a few years before i retired to address that certain issue and the supreme court upheld the trial court's decision that it really was not mandating your retirement and so it wasn't a qualification that kept you from doing what you needed to do but the effects are still the same which I think is just un, unreasonable. Wow. I am, I, I am actually speechless. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As were a lot of us. <laughs> so when you say the Supreme Court upheld it, do you mean the United States Supreme so Court sorry. or the Arkansas Supreme Court? That is my fault, the Arkansas Supreme Court. Oh, no, no, you're fine. I just want to clarify. Um, well, that is an interesting piece of information I did not know. And does that apply to all Arkansas judges, regardless of whatever your um, position is? It's the trial court judges. Trial court judges. Circuit court judges. Okay. Well, that is fascinating. I would love to know more about that, but I, I, I digressed a little and I appreciate you um, indulging me on that. <laughs> so circling back to um, the United States Supreme Court, I, I suspect the, the confirmation process will be uh, challenging and probably not quick. Um, what advice might you have for the Black woman that does have to go through this process just based on your own experiences in your field, but also as a Black woman? Well, I would not presume to give any advice. I've never been in that position and I'm- Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> She's going right. to get more advice probably than she wants or needs from the people who are similarly situated or who have ushered people through those same processes right they're going to be a, a whole bunch of different pressures and i mean even i mean the position that i that's a circuit judge here is not as a high-ranking position but you, you find that everyone has an opinion on what you should do and there's so many different people coming at you saying how you should do certain things or what not to do or, or what's expected of you and um i mean really with anything i'm I can't presume to know all the, the challenges that she, she will face, but I mean, for me, everything starts with prayer and praying for discernment <laughs> and with every step that I take and every decision that I'm making. I, I mean, that's 
that's the only advice I feel comfortable giving <laughs> um, to anyone pursuing anything. That's good advice, but you bring up a good point. You're talking about the pressures that you feel. And I think that's something that maybe we don't talk about a lot is oftentimes we lift up individuals, especially men and women of color who are the first, you know, the first whatever in their field. Right. And it's, it's an honor, but the flip side of that, as you alluded to is the pressure, the stress that comes with being that representative, right? Um, what are some of those pressures or, or challenges that you face in terms of, okay, I'm the first and now I have to, for example, be a role model. Like what, what is the, what is the mental process there? Well, as it, as the first judge, I, I did not, well, the pressures that I felt were not so much from outside sources as they were Mm self-imposed because I have always been the type of person who wants to do the best she can do in every, every circumstance. And so with being a judge comes a lot of pressures anyway, with being a female adds to those pressures when being a black female adds even more and being the first black female adds to that list. So there's a sense of isolation with being a judge anyway. There is intense scrutiny about what you do on and off the bench. And often any mistakes can be magnified. That didn't necessarily happen to me, but those are some of the pressures that being first can can bring. And you just have to have a sense of knowing that you are doing all you can do, the best you can do, When you make a mistake, you have to admit you made a mistake, be willing to learn, be willing to own it, be willing to continue to do what you need to do to be a fair judge, comply with the code of judicial conduct, require the people who work for you to do the same. And you just, as Shani said, pray. I prayed every day for knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. I did that for years. Then in the later years, I added something else, knowledge, wisdom, understanding, and patience. And if I didn't get to use those every day, I was just amazed. So you just have a lot of responsibility. And in being the first, you do have the responsibility of knowing that you are paving the way that you have laid the foundation and groundwork for someone else to come behind you and do what you have done and in fact, do more. So that's an obligation. You are a role model anyway, but you are a role model for that specific position once you get it. And that's something that you have to wear, wear proudly, know that you can't do everything for everybody all the time as no one can, but you do the best you can. And at the end of the day, forgive yourself for the things that you thought you should have done and didn't and press on the next day because it is wearing, especially in the area of juvenile work, dealing with children and families. It wears you out mentally and physically Some days I thought, I can't keep doing this, especially after the pandemic came and I was working from home. I would leave my office, which was in one of the guest bedrooms, and go in the family room and look at my husband and just start crying. I'm thinking, I can't do this. I just can't do this. I don't have the mental stamina. I don't have the physical stamina. It's too much to be done. I don't know that I can hold on until December the 31st of 2020 when I retire. And then I would say my prayers, go to bed. And the next day, I would just be renewed with them, vigor, vitality, and a willingness to go on. But I think that's just life anyway. And the pandemic layered that extra burden of pressure on everyone. And I would say daily to people, 
who were crying in court. This was involving attorneys, parents, caseworkers, people were in tears. And I would say it's the pandemic on top of all the difficulties we're having. You are a worthy person, you are worthwhile. Give yourself some grace. I know what you're feeling. We're just gonna have to trudge through this and do the best we can. But again, that's what life is all about. I mean, just being a black woman in a legal profession, I, I think when you're the first or you're one of few or um, there are many self-imposed things that you might put on yourself as far as doing a good job that might be real or just perceived just from the culture and a knowledge of knowing that sometimes, I mean, you are held to a higher standard. People are looking at you uh, with a little bit more scrutiny. I know personally, myself being a black woman in the legal profession, that I've walked into many rooms and individuals have been surprised to learn that I was either the attorney on the case or, and then even when I've been told that I was the attorney that still put me as the client or the case, <laughs> the caseworker, regardless of me having conversation, you know, explicitly telling me in that conversation that my role and what I'm there to do. And so personally for me, um, just the way that I was just raised and I always have strived to be not to be the weakest link because the judicial system in and of itself is only as strong as its weakest link and you know you never want to be that attorney or that lawyer or judge who does not you know know what's going on know, know the rules of which you're supposed to apply and have a firm grasp of, of, of what needs to be done in each particular case and so I, I do believe that um, minorities in, in, in general uh, when you are the when you are the first or you are one of few, people may expect you to fail or not know as much. You know, it's kind of like sometimes surprised that you are as professional or knowledgeable in whatever subject matter in which you're in which you're um, articulating at the time. Well, thank you so much for sharing those personal experiences with us. I appreciate that, and all of the topics we've discussed today, we've covered a lot of ground. So we'll leave you and our audience with this one last question. Um, as to Black women who are one of few in the field, what advice would you give to young women of color who are interested in, in pursuing a judicial career? My advice would be to forge ahead, even though it may be difficult, it may look like it can never happen. Do not let someone else define what you are able to do. It is a lot of hard work, determination. You need to have the right kind of character. You need discipline. You need to be able to communicate well. You need to pray a lot and you just need to keep going because if it is something that you are determined to do, you need to pursue it. Yes, um, so anyone listening that is interested in you know, pursuing a legal career, whatever if you believe you can you can if you believe you can't you can't and so um it's important to to not be not for you not to be your own barrier at being an additional barrier in achieving whatever you need because there'll be a number of factors that you'll have to balance and juggle financial social just just different things and just just doing your best at all times and um pray, praying for discernment when you face um challenges and of being in a, of just a, a good person at heart and, and, and making sure you act, your actions are, con and are consistent with your thoughts and, and intentions. All great advice. Thank you so much for that, Judge Warren and Judge Johnson. It's been a pleasure to meet you both and I've enjoyed spending this time with you. Thank you again for being so gracious with your time and your insight. You as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Today's guests were retired Judge Joyce Williams Warren and Judge Shawnee Johnson, and we want to thank them once more for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks also to you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you want to check out more episodes from the Affirmative Action Podcast, be sure to visit our website, argotsoul.com slash affirmative action. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. I'm Antoinette Grajeda. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, take care.